I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today I'm joined here in a Zoom session hosted through the Kelly Writers House by Eric Sneathan, a poet living in Oakland who, with Lauren Levin, is editing Honey Mine, the Selected Fictions of Camille Roy, forthcoming 2021 from Nightbook Books. And with Daniel Benjamin, edited The Bigness of Things, New Narrative and Visual Culture, Wolfman Books, 2017. His first book, Snail Poems, was published by Kripskaya, and whose most recent chapbook is I Fill This Room with the Echo of Many Voices. And by Trisha Lowe, author of The Complete Purge, Kenning Editions, 2013, and of Socialist Realism, Coffeehouse Press, 2019 whom I'm pleased to recollect, spent some years doing great things here or nearby here at the Kelly Writers House, then earned a degree in performance studies at NYU and currently lives in the East Bay of Northern California. And by Gabriel Ojeda Segay, who with Eric Kessel Jr. edited the Soberscope Press book of Gustavo Ojeda's sketches called An Excess of Quiet Selective Sketches by Gustavo Ojeda. 1979-1989, scheduled for release in November 2020. Very exciting. Whose most recent book of poems is Losing Miami, published by The Accomplices, and whose next poetry book to be issued by Nightboat is called Madness and is scheduled for early 2022. Gabe, hello. Congratulations on these forthcoming big things. Hi, Al, and thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah. I mean, I think we can take the scare quotes off of here. I feel <laughs> here with you. Trisha. it's good to see you. It's really been too long. You used to hang around in the East Coast more, but now you're far away. But it's great to see you. Yeah, but the writer's house always feels like home. The rocking chair in the kitchen is still there where I used to do my homework. Yeah, totally. Well, that you just said the totally right thing for, for the, to begin poem talk, making f- me feel all warm and fuzzy. And Eric Smith and we are seeing each other for the very st- first time, but thank you so much for joining us uh, for this session. Hi, Al. It's really great to see you. Yeah. So today the four of us have gathered here to talk about a poem by Kevin Killian titled, Is It All Over My Face? Question mark. The poem appeared in Kevin's 2008 book, Action Kylie, uh, the six minute and 46 second recording of the poem with a little bit of an introduction we're going to hear comes from a reading he gave at Robin's Bookstore here in Philadelphia in 2007, a little before the book came out. This great reading, this great recording we're about to hear appears with nine other readings and several recorded talks and interviews on Penn Sound's Kevin Killian author page. So here now is the late and much missed Kevin Killian performing, Is It All Over My Face? And this one is called, Is It All Over My Face? Uh, 
This is also a name of a song by a, um, a composer called Arthur Russell. Does anybody know Russell or his work? Okay, great. And this details an affair that a brief affair I had with Russell way back in the day. Arthur Russell died of AIDS about in '92. Uh, Spring, and is, is it all over my face? Is like a, he was a avant-garde cellist. And he was also a disco producer. And this one is one of his disco songs. Is it all over my face? You've caught me love dancing. <laughs> Spring, 1978. Me clutching old copy of Gay Sunshine. On verso, Allen Ginsberg's poem, I lay love on my knee. I nursed love where he lay. I let love get away. I let love lie low in Stony Brook, Long Island, where once Denise Levertov nearly expired of an illicit passion in wartime. And that, that's where I was going to school at the time, Stony Brook. Spring, so difficult to keep Allen Ginsberg's rhythms out of my head. The numb, dumb beat that he compared to the stroke of a cock the pulse when you're holding it up or out in front of you. and His affect was strong, unruly. He was so used to getting what he wanted. Indeed, maybe it's a Buddhist trait, their accent and humility, some kind of bizarre cover-up for this emotional thing. He was away on business. And the backstory is like, I, was, I wanted to have sex with Allen Ginsberg, like a notch on my belt. And Alan was then touring with Arthur Russell, who would play the cello while he re you know, recited his poems. And he would like fob me off with Arthur Russell, who had really bad skin. He was like, why don't you two get together? <laughs> Always the two tails of his beige trench coat disappearing into subway car doors. That was Alan, like he was always walking away. Is it all over my face that when I talk with you, I feel myself grow red, your wispy beard, and the heavy smell of cigarette smoke with you. I feel the obviousity of Ginsburg's doggerel verse grow into baton-like accent and stricture like it is going to pound me to death. Is it all over my face? You've caught me love dancing. Everything returns again. Everything comes back. The return of the repressed. Both the laughter and the rain. She is living somewhere far away. Hey. And I send her this poem to give her options to ask her in my lonely way. Today the skies are over our little park are grim, pink, streaked with black and white like a cat. And nothing, nothing can hold back the rain. I could see through the clouds to this place where Arthur Russell brings his hand around my cock, his cello wet with tears, and now he's gone. I told my friends, he is not the boy for me. <laughs> Desiree, you know how it hurts me. He caught me love dancing. 
heeding the warnings of Allen Ginsberg, the American Buddhist poet who predicted that their love would lead to untold suffering. He and Arthur Russell lived apart from the day they were married. His death from AIDS in June, April 1992 inspired some of my own most beautiful work. My own premature death in June 2004 marked a great loss to contemporary Buddhist poetry. Where do I run to? Is it real? 15 stitches across my face, one for every man that hurt me. 15 apparitions I have seen. The worst, a coat upon a coat hanger. Players and painted stage took all my love and not those things that they were emblems of. Is it all over? My face feels scarred. My teeth stretched across Botox and bandages. In the silhouette he casts, the window of a moving train, moving faces, temporary hookup. He touched the other side of my face, red maple, pepper bush, cranberry. I should say these are the native plants of Long Island. You won't know that. Red maple, pepper bush, cranberry, is it all over the internet? Series of short, short, sharp abdominal pains. Is it common lingua franca, the way my soul seeks to engulf you? Is it all over my face, the shame of belief, the way the ears of George Bush Jr. sprout from his head, for he fears the angel? Is it all over the world, the red maples of Xanadu, cranberry, the simple gift of Long Island, Almost the way Arthur Russell, Lou Harrison played on it, Allen Ginsberg, all noble. Arthur Russell, Lou Harrison played on it till sunset, spring 1978, and far away fingerprints for Kylie Minogue on cattails still finds a way to haunt me, always and forever. I don't usually start a poem talk by saying this, but I just have to say, this poem has got everything about it that I admire about poems in different ways. But I think, I know we're going to get deeply into it. I know even before we start talking that we all four of us feel that this is a very powerful poem, but let's start with, by a little twice round compiling of some references, because Kevin really is really referring to a lot. He's building a scene in several time registers. So let's go twice around, lightning round, real fast, each of us, just throw out a reference, almost like uh, annotation. Gabe, you wanna start? Sure, um, I'll start just with Arthur Russell, who has, um, after he passed away from AIDS, become a really big figure um, nowadays, but um, he was an experimental musician, but he made this disco track with loose joints. It got a very famous remix uh, by Larry Levon. Um, and it's that's it's really that chorus of just is it all over my face? You caught me love dancing over this like four on the floor beat. So perfect, good way to start, Trisha. Another one. Yeah, I like doing this because it's kind of like gossip, um, and I hope someone has the Denise Levertov reference because I looked it up but I couldn't yeah. really find it. So if anybody knows what that is, I want to know. I want to know about how she nearly expired of an illicit passion. Um, I guess the Allen Ginsberg poem, I lay a love on my knee, 
we could talk about how that's very Blakeian or inspired by Blake. I actually was unfamiliar with that poem. I had to look it up. Mm. Um, and I was surprised by the kind of um, stringent cadence of it. Um, and I'm interested in, in talking about that in, in relation to Dick later. I'm excited about it. Great. Um, and a footnote to the footnote, Tricia, he read that poem at readings often. And it's yeah. seemed to me that Kevin must have heard it at the reading. All right, Eric, your turn. Um, I really wanted to point out um, my own premature death in June 2004. Um, mm -hmm. So Kevin had a heart attack around that time. Um, and so when he's thinking about um, death and kind of reflecting on it, of course, he's thinking about his own kind of near-death experience. Mm, I think later I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up the topic of whether this poem can be called an elegy and a pre-elegy at the same time, which of course is very powerful. We think that Kevin is gone. Um, okay, my turn for a reference. Well, I just, I think I wanted, it's a weird reference, but it's the obviousity of Ginsburg's doggerel verse. I mean, I think people who know superficially about Ginsburg think of him as the Whitmanian long line guy, but he was very devoted to the Blakeian ballad of course, and sang them. And I think at this time in the late 70s, that's a lot of what he was doing in performance. And I'll just throw out that I think that, this isn't a lightning round, sorry, I broke my own rule. Um, when Kevin gets to the num-dum beat uh, uh, of Ginsburg, his own lines become Ginsburgian. The, um, to the, uh, his death from AIDS in April 1992 is of course referring to Russell, but it's a Ginsburg section. And those two lines operate in terms of indents, just like a Ginsburg line. So I think Kevin is trying on the Ginsburg line. Uh, so anyway, all right, one, another round, Gabe, a reference. Yeah, um, most of what, I think actually all of what Kevin sings in that line are songs by the left bank. Um, just sort of like, I don't know, I kind of think of them as like Baroque Beatles. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the two songs specifically are Pretty Ballerina and Desiree. Those are the songs he's referencing. Okay, great. Trisha? Yeah, um, so towards the end of the poem, Fingerprints for Kylie, that's referring to, you know, Kevin's muse, Kylie Minogue. Everybody has their favorite pop star. Personally, I'm indebted to Britney, but I respect Kevin's love for Kylie. Um, and also, just for kicks, Xanadu, the Olivia Newton-John movie of epic proportions. We can talk about that later, but just two pop cultural references towards the end. Oh, excellent. Obviously the, the Kylie reference is important for the book. Um, all right, Eric, uh, another annotation. I was interested in, of course, the opening lines about gay sunshine, uh, which was like the West Coast gay lib periodical, uh, very hippie influenced. Um, Berkeley, right? It starts in Berkeley and then it moves around. Winston Leland eventually takes it over. Um, but I guess what I liked about this opening is that for most of the poem, we're situated on the East Coast um, at Stony Brook, where Kevin eventually goes ABD. He moves to San Francisco uh, to write his dissertation, supposedly, and then just stays here forever. So we open this poem with this kind of gesture towards a future, his future in San Francisco. Perfect. Okay, I'm going to do not so much an annotation, but a way of turning toward a topic for us to talk about. Um, I don't know Kevin's, the, the facts of his life 
well enough to know that the, whether the 15 stitches across his face refer to encounters where he has been beaten up or harassed um, by, uh, by uh, gay bashers, or whether it's a metaphor that gets us back to his face. But that, that stanza for me is, the poem really turns to some deep register, 15 stitches across my face, one for every man that hurt me. So I guess, I guess I want to turn that and open it out to the three of you to talk about what that violence means in the context of, of um, sex with Arthur Russell and the, really the general story. Gabe, would you start on that, do you mind? Yeah, um, so Arthur Russell for me is somebody who's very much obsessed with like how love shows or how feelings kind of show on the surface. So another great song of his is, um, Hey, How Does Everybody Know? Which is like, hey, how does everybody know that like, I love you if you don't? Like, how is everybody, how can everybody tell that? So there's this constant theme in Russell of the physical manifestation of, of intimacy. And I think Kevin kind of twists it in this nice way where it's a bit more violent. It's a bit more, um, I would say a little melodramatic, right? You know, like that kind of like the people, the men who hurt me, who knows if that's lovers or enemies or whatever. And I like, I like that. So it's, it's kind of an interface with Russell. It's kind of an interface with his own relationship with Russell, but it's also a way of thinking about the, I don't know, the physical life of intimate memory. I want to connect it back to the death by AIDS. Um, I mean, it really very deliberately, is the, the, as Eric suggested, times are changing here constantly. We have 78, which is the first interaction. We have the death in 92, and we have various presents, present times. But for the moment, let's focus on his death from AIDS in April 1992, and the next stanza is 15 stitches across my face. So Gabe, Trisha, Gabe, Gabe suggested that the 15 stitches across my face is possibly men that hurt me in the act of loving. And yet we have death by AIDS before that. Any, any thoughts on the comp juxtaposition? I think Gabe is right in, in the sense of, um looking towards that violence, the violence of 15 stitches across my face is something that's a little bit more melodramatic. Not that the violence of AIDS isn't real, but just that it was more pervasive than just 15 stitches across my face, right? And there's something that feels really kind of like decorative or Baroque about naming those injuries and naming those love affairs, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that the the later part of that stanza is really interesting to me. Players and painted stage took all my love and not those things that they were emblems of, mm -hmm. right? The way that a lot of Kevin's work feels to me to deal with loss is to kind of like feel, fill it up with these very specific reference, right? Like these sorts of shared reference from the community sometimes maybe, or personal reference in order to kind of betray a feeling without having to refer to the emotion directly, mm. right? Um, and I think that that's something that is, is a big part of what is so powerful about this poem. The loss is also contained in what's like comedic or flexible or parodic, right? It's not just a poem about AIDS or about loss or about absence. Eric, can we go from there, what Trisha just said, to the apparitions? Um, 15 apparitions. So apparitions are 
representations of people no longer there, they're ghosts, they're illusions. Um, so look at the, Eric, look at the tense. So we have his death from AIDS. So he's reading this poem or writing this poem at the time of the Kylie book or performing it at Robbins in 2007, looking back on a death in 92 and uses the past tense, inspired. Then when we get to the 15 stitches, he deliberately in those first two lines does not use tense, so we don't know where we're floating. And then 15 apparitions, I have seen, which is a retrospective version of the past tense. So the apparitions have to be the ghosts of Russell and others who, who are gone. And then we get the, uh, and then we get the self-elegy, the pre-elegy of himself. Can you help us? I'm probably all wrong in figuring that out, but I'm just trying to pass along to you the job of figuring out how many, this is an incredibly, a poem of an incredibly complicated recollection and time movement. Yeah, I, um, I think the thing about Kevin's poems is like you, um, as the reader, don't always know if what you're reading is an illusion, a citation, or something incredibly specific uh, from his own life or a figment of his imagination. Like you're moving between all those possibilities at once and it's very easy to feel like, um, or when I read his poems, I sometimes feel duped <laughs> um, in that kind of uh, movement. I, I, what I like about it being 15 apparitions is that it's more than has been accounted for so far in the poem. Like we don't have 15 people that he's talked about, but it's also like a number that is, we can, we can count to easily. It's really specific. And so like this loss is larger than what the poem has already accounted for. Um, but that largeness is not like infinite. It's actually really specific and it's probably something lived. What he sees, right, is a reminder of absence. Yeah, I just want to say, like, I think connecting also to what Trisha was saying, that line, 15 apparitions I have seen, the worst a coat upon a coat hanger, is it's almost bathic in the sense of being like, if you think like, what's the worst ghost, like the coat on the coat hanger almost doesn't fit that role. Like it almost seems a little funny, um, but you can understand how a coat on a coat hanger would be an apparition in the sense that it's covering something that should be a body, but it's not there. And I think I just want to mention like those lines of his death from AIDS in April, 1992, et cetera. There's a lot of uh, kind of like wearing of, I don't know, many hats or wearing different kind of costumes. Like I kind of read that first line as almost as if he was speaking as Ginsburg um, or speaking as somebody who kind of knew Russell in a particular way and made work out of him. And then I wouldn't describe Kevin as like a master of Buddhist art. So the, imagined death of himself is like kind of a fun because he's also kind of making himself yeah. Ginsburg who died in like 97 I think and then Lou Harrison who is at the end of the poem died in like 2003 so there's a lot of these kind of Buddhist gay New Yorker deaths that Kevin is putting himself in so it's a little bit yeah there's a little bit of like costuming and, and there's a little bit of humor in how sad this can be it's possible that the coat upon a coat hanger is Ginsburg, who is always seen walking, moving away with his trench coat. Right, right. You know, the, the ultimate loss there. Um, Trisha, it is it all over my face. Um, and then the poem ends. We don't, you know, we don't have to spell that out. We know what it is. But it 
it is a very big word in Kevin Killian and because he's just such a master at um, that openness. And at the end, we have three, three Ginsburg-like stanzas where you get the line on the left and then the indents, which either mean it's a run on Whitmanian or it's something else. But is it it all over the internet? Is it all over my face a repetition of what it is in the title? And then is it all over the world? So how does it function? I mean, that's a big question, right? I mean, the, the, the openness of it. But I do, I mean, before I answer that question, I do want to go back to something that Eric was saying about how sometimes when you read Kevin's poems, you feel duped. Like, I am very interested in this idea, right? Because it relates to, is it all over my face? Like, what, what is the authenticity of what is all over my face and what is not, right? Like, how, how can that change from moment to moment or from text to text or from, from one costume to another or from one um, poet elder to another, maybe? We can talk about mm -hmm. that as well, right? In terms of queer kinship, is it all over my face? Um, and the, the kinds of fluids that might be on one's face blood or come and you know if those things belie a certain kind of lineage or heritage in terms of queer sexuality and you know I went back to fascination which is you know Kevin's most latest autobiographical work and I read the piece about Arthur Russell triangles in the sand because I thought that it would give me a few clues as to what what the truth of this the truth of this poem is not possible <laughs> not possible i don't believe in that but i i was curious to see if there was any gossip that would kind of like elucidate my reading and all that i found was like more and more possibility like more more and more implications that could have been drawn from every line in relation to mm -hmm. events that might have been real or might have not been real or might be memories or fiction that um, is so great what you're yeah. saying uh, I miss being in conversation with you. That was so great. You know, I'm not going to let go of the it question. I'm going to come back to it. But oh, I, yeah. actually, it just occurred to me to invite all three of you briefly, please, to say something about the uh, factor of, you've been using the word gossip. Let's just stay with that word. You know, Kevin would always interrupt his, and people <laughs> could just go to, go to Penn Sound and listen to all the readings, always interrupt with basically annotations that are mostly gossip. Can you all speak to the quality of that? It's very much part, we could have cut that out of the recording, but of course we shouldn't because it's part of the home performance. So Eric, you first, what is the role of Kevin interrupting himself to explain stuff? What I think about um, his role as an author with these poems, like it is, it is his mind, it is his sentiment, it is his genius that brings all these illusions together. There's really, no reason that Kylie Minogue should be in this poem, for example, except right. that Kevin is here, so Kylie must also be here. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so those go together for me. But I, what I think was really interesting is that it's this really short stanza, red maple, pepper bush, cranberry, mm. that he's like, you wouldn't know what this is. You know, these are the native plants of Long Island. And both of the recordings on Penn Sound, uh, Kevin gives the same annotation that these are the native plants. And I think that's really interesting because what it shows is on some level, he knows that he's building into these poems a certain kind of opacity that he then maybe heroically <laughs> kind of explains for us and demystifies for yeah. us. Um, these are performance scripts as much as they're poems. Yeah. I, Gabe? 
Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, Kevin was such a ham, like, and I, and I feel like um, I almost can't talk about his performance style without mentioning that he's like, I don't know, he's like, a, he was, to me, in my mind, he was like campy and sort of uh, very grandiose and kind of funny. And I think like that, that like reference that you just mentioned, Eric, like I find the line, the, the, the way he describes it, you wouldn't know that. It's kind of funny because it's not just like, oh, here's the thing that probably your average person doesn't know. I didn't know it, but it's like, you wouldn't know that, but I do. Um, and so then he's also kind of mixing in his singing and he sings some things that are from songs, but he also speaks some things that are from songs and he kind of varies it up a little bit. And so, I don't know, it's like, uh, I feel like his readings were always very oriented towards the communities that he was a part of in the sense that he was constantly referencing people he knew and he was kind of trying to make that, the social world of the poem like really available to people, but at the same time kind of making it its own performance. Like the social aspects of it and all the references were its own performance in itself. I think that's kind of what Eric is saying. Yeah. Desiree, you know how it hurts me. He caught me love dancing. Heeding the warnings of Allen Ginsberg, the American Buddhist poet who predicted that their love would lead to untold suffering. He and Arthur Russell lived apart from the day they were married. His death from AIDS in June, April 1992 inspired some of my own most beautiful work. My own premature death in June 2004 marked a great loss to contemporary Buddhist poetry. Where do I run to? Is it real? 15 stitches across my face, one for every man that hurt me. Trisha, this question is right up your alley. This idea that narrative and poems should be inclusive of all kinds of things that are in the poet's mind is something that's influenced you. Anyway, go, go anywhere with this. Yeah, I mean, like Eric, I did listen to like several different performances of this one poem. I mean, Suzanne Stein, when I was reading it, Suzanne Stein mentioned to me that like, you know, it's so interesting. She sees, you know, it's all over my face on the page, the poem on the page. And she has a very specific memory of like the exact cadence that Kevin would use. Right. And I think that every everybody has that that memory. It's kind of like a community sense memory because this poem is valuable and important socially right or like a kind of like encapsulation of what kevin meant to us in some ways um but i'm really interested in what eric's saying about how like you know in all of these different performances like there are certain interventions that are scripted right or like there are certain kinds of explanations that that kevin really really does always do and and why why is that right so many of those comments, even though they're the same, read very differently based on the audience, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's Kevin's commentary is very much um, to build a certain kind of camaraderie, right? And in the recording that we just, we just heard, you know, the, the native plants of Long Island comment felt a little bit more subdued but then in the other recording it's very much a joke right with a younger audience where there, where he and then kevin makes this comment about how like oh it was like a very 70s thing to like name the plants in your poem right <laughs> um and so it's really fascinating to say to see how these comments 
play very differently in those different social contexts over a period of time. Like it, they do feel kind of haunted if we're going to talk about ghosts in that way, right? Like these comments kind of haunt the poem with different contexts and like build up over time. Mm. Um, I feel like, especially now listening to Kevin read this poem is like, it, there's no way for it to not be a very emotional and haunted experience. Yeah, emotional right? and haunted. Um, I guess it's the, the right moment to talk about the elegiac elegy and even pre-elegy in the reference to his own near death. How elegiac is this poem? Obviously it is. How pre-elegiac for the poet is it? So it's, it's written in the sort of memory of, of Russell, of Ginsburg, and probably of Lou Harrison. I mean, Lou Harrison plays a much more minor role, but um, it's written about lovers' uh, past and a, and a lover that didn't really happen because, as Kevin said, Ginsburg sort of pawned him off. Um, and it's also, I think, about, like, I kind of think of it as, like, the gay art-making uh, groups, you know, like... Russell and Ginsburg were working on something together and they were trying to come up with something and, and Russell was working with, a, you know, these like gay disco producers to make something. And, and I, I honestly, I think of it kind of as like gay people working together and, and sort of one of the things that I think is sitting in this poem is not just AIDS, but really just, you know, death in general um, and how it affects kind of these art making communities and practices and collaborations and things like that. And, Kevin's poems are collaborative without being collaborative in the sense that they are overpopulated. They're so full of stuff. And um, though he's kind of the, the master of ceremonies, like he's constantly populating it. So I do think it's elegiac in that sense. Um, and in the sense also that there's so much time mixing, we've been mentioning that, but as, as we've been talking about it more, I've realized how honestly hard to track it is. Like, I kind of feel like if you, came at this poem and you tried to like map it, it would be almost impossible. Like you suddenly in the seventies, you're suddenly in the nineties. And it's what Trisha said about plants being a seventies thing. I was like, Oh my God, what is going on here? So <laughs> kind of elegy sense. I agree with you. I'm going to turn to Eric on this. I agree with you that the time stamps are hard to track, but they're, but he does deliberately leave dates in for you and then refers to one that I'm going to talk about in a second. Gen openly, generally. So you can kind of know where you are. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, I'm going to toss out this idea that it follows the traditional elegy in a way, in that the traditional elegy goes back to the time of the person lost, then goes to the present of the loss, and then looks to the future. Uh, you know, the world will go on. That's the traditional elegy. Now, this isn't traditional, and that's totally in that sense. But we have spring 78, which is where an elegy would begin, a memory, a very specific memory. Um, and then we have today, the skies. Today has to be the time of the writing of this poem, even though it may be Long Island, which is a later memory, but actually it might be the present of the composition of the poem, the time when he's remembering, possibly. Um, today, the skies over our little park are grim. So you get the pathetic fallacy of the sad weather. And that's yeah. very traditional. And I, I just marked that 2007, the time of the composition of the poem. And then we get to the death of a in, by AIDS of the main character, Arthur Russell and others in 1992, which tries to pick up what the world is going to do after that community has been destroyed. 
Yeah, it's interesting when you lay it out like that, it does seem um, to progress in actually a rather straightforward linear way. Like we begin in 78, he leaps to 92, and then we're in 2004, which is when the poem is first published. But um, I think that in thinking about Elegy, uh, the idea of sleeping with Ginsburg is really important um, because to sleep with Ginsburg is to, uh, a, you know, according to gay literary myth, is to like sleep with somebody who slept in an unbroken chain with people back all the way to Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of like what you secure in sleeping with Allen Ginsburg is a kind of transcendental sex life, <laughs> transcendent sex life. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's that immortality is really important here. And the yeah. fact that Kevin misses out on his chance to kind of become part of that lineage is, is very important. In a um, way, he broke the chain of witness. <laughs> right. Or, or he let other people uh, <laughs> join the chain. Does that, I actually, does to, Eric, does that, sorry to interrupt, does that connect us to the quality of pre algae? Um, you know, uh, well, I think you were you were asking questions about AIDS earlier, and I think that um, what this poem makes me think of is like, I think especially for Kevin, but maybe also for many gay men, like thinking about their lives and their deaths, especially after the epidemic, like these things could not be separated. I think that. Kevin uh, indicates that by kind of bringing in Arthur Russell and pointing to his death in 92. But you also can't think about AIDS in this poem without also going a little further back and thinking about gay liberation, which is what we get with the gay sunshine poem. Like there's a whole reality that seems to kind of collapse in on itself and be lost. It's not just about the particular reality that AIDS foreclosed, but this kind of whole, um, right, utopia. The reason I used, and I didn't mean it snarkily, the uh, phrase of break the chain of witness, referring to bearing witness, to establish a connection all the way back, especially of a world that's lost, um, that's the language of the survivor. It's a, it's a phrase coming out of the, the now long tradition of Holocaust studies or genocide studies, right? So, but, so we do have a kind of genocide in the background and we do have survival. Trisha, take this anywhere you want. I mean, I, I just wanna, I mean, just in terms of my thinking about this poem and in terms of elegy, I mean, there's lots of connections that we can make too in relation to Jack Spicer, who Kevin Killian really admired and who was really the master of the elegy in certain kinds of ways, um, especially in romantic contexts, one night stands, not really deaths, Right. I mean, so that kind of plays into what Eric is saying about how, like, um, you know, the a romantic loss, the romantic loss of Ginsburg or the, the loss of literary romance in a certain way could belie kind of elegy. But I think that when thinking about the AIDS crisis and in thinking about the way that queerness is so often figured in relation to loss or great loss or loss of a previous identity or loss of access to like a previous life or, you know, I, I, I rub up a little bit against that personally, right? So like, I think that when I read this poem, what I read is so much 
more that's given in return in relation to loss, right? You think about like the, all the different lines of queer legacy that are being drawn all over this poem, right? Like even, even if it's snarky in relation to Ginsburg or like, you know, really about how he wanted to sleep with Ginsburg, like those things are, are kind of like quintessentially queer, right? A kind of kinship that's like not the same as other kinds of literary kinship. And then like at the end of the poem where he's talking about Arthur Russell, Lou Harrison played on it, Allen Ginsberg, All Noble, like he's drawing his own genealogy. There's something about this poem that makes me feel less like it's about what you've lost than, than it is about what you've gained, right? I guess that's what I wanted to say, that it feels like a poem more of legacy than it does of, of loss. I, I very much agree with you, Trisha, and I think that, um, one of the, going back to what Eric was saying, I think what's kind of funny about the rejection by Ginsburg is like that Russell's the plan B or whatever for Ginsburg, right? But but Russell makes quite an impression on this poem on Kevin and, and Russell was, honestly, I think Russell's a better artist than Ginsburg, but that's my, that's me, that's me. Um, and I, I wanna think about just impression for a second because um, I think like one way of saying what you just said, Trisha, about this be poem being about legacy is also mm -hmm. a poem about kind of impressions made by mm -hmm. people onto others. And I think one of the things that's very iconic about Arthur Russell in maybe a negative sense was his face, which was like, he had very bad acne scarring and he was very insecure about it and people kind of commented on it. And I think like, this is a poem that is about the face and about seeing emotions in the face, about seeing history in the face. Um, there's literally scarring that Kevin kind of talks about for himself. And then the song is, is it all over my face? Can you see it on my face? And so I think this poem is really about like the way people kind of imprint on each other. And Kevin is maybe kind of, re I don't know if relishing is the right word, but he's really like kind of wading in all of these impressions and all of this like transmission um, to, to use a kind of Ginsburg sex term um, among these communities of people. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask us to go once around uh, in response to a question I'm gonna pose and then once more around with final thoughts. Some, something you wanted to say, but didn't have a chance. I asked this question very lightly because you may or may not wanna get into the, the way it feels personally um, and particularly given the apparitions. So the voice of Kevin Killian as I hear it having heard it a number of times in performance, that voice. Uh, hearing it again and hearing the end of the poem still finds a way to haunt me always and forever. That's a voice, that's the Killian voice I'm hearing when I read that now. Mm -hmm. So I ask, what is it like for you to admire a poet and then go back to a poem, being asked to talk about it at length for poem talk, now that the poet himself is gone? Gabe, do you want to try that? Yeah, I can start. I think once you become, you know, friends with a poet and talk to a poet, like sometimes you can forget how good their work is, like, and you can forget like the actual craft level stuff. Um, so I thought that one of the reasons that, you know, I, I wanted to kind of do this poem and, and talk about it was I wanted to pay attention to it because I think Kevin's work resists close analysis in some ways, partly because of the duping that Eric talked about, partly because of how kind of wide it is aesthetically, but, um, and how narrative and, and kind of free flowing it is. But I think actually it's a sign for me of like a kind of respect to, to put the poem under the 
I'll say in one word duress, I'll say in another word kind of like closeness of, of analysis and, and say like, how did this poem get made? What, what's happening in it? So that I think for me, it was, it was pure enjoyment, I think. Lovely, thank you. Trisha, your thoughts on this? I mean, I guess like I have a, a little bit more of a specific experience of it because I, I listened to it after, like I said, I read Triangles in the Sand, which is the account of, of his experience with, with, with Kevin's experience of Arthur Russell. And a lot of that piece or like a part of that piece is hearing about Arthur Russell's death and then thinking back upon their time together in life um, with, a re with a reasonable amount of ugly feeling, right? Which is something that I really value about Kevin's work, right? Like he talks about how like in some ways like Arthur Russell's acne made him feel more attractive, right? And that he was kind of this foil in a certain kind of way. Like he was so cool, but at least his skin was bad. Um, but also like losing touch with Arthur Russell and how it felt to hear about the death in relation to that, right? And I think that, um, yeah, this is, I mean, it's hard to talk about, right? But it's like, I think that when you listen to someone's work in relation to their death, in relation to, you know, deaths that have come before that and people's experiences of it, you think about um, regret, right? In certain kinds of ways or like, um, all the like kind of like what could have been about life, right? Not in a specific way as in like, oh, I would have done things differently, but just because life is over and there are no more opportunities to really engage in a different way or in a way that you might've wanted maybe, right? But I think that um, one thing that I really liked listening to it was that it felt like, um, it felt like a myth or something, right? It felt like Kevin had become a myth. And I think that he would have liked that. I think a lot about, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot about myths and how, you know, I think Bob Gluck has a line in one of his pieces. I can't remember which one about how like it's the, um, it's like an imaginary resolution of a contradiction. And I think that when you think about death, it's, it's just like irreconcilable, right? The fact that like, I sent Kevin a Christmas card that played a My Little Pony tune. And then like now I'm listening to this poem and he's not really there anymore. And he's like a, this figure, right? That's different. Like that's not, that's not reconcilable. But in a certain way, like the space of the poem or the space of Kevin as myth is doing some imaginary work that I also find to be like important and interesting and in some ways soothing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Eric, you can pass or try this, up, totally up to you. I mean, I listen to this, these recordings, right? And my first thought is he's missing and that feels wrong and that feels really hard. Um, I miss him a lot. Um, one of the things that I love about the recordings is the laughter that you can hear an audience responding to him. You can, there's just this, um, record that he was such a ham and that people clearly loved him and his work. Um, when I was thinking about this poem this morning, I was thinking like, there's something about his poetry that's like being flirted with by like a really smart person. And 
I don't always know what's happening to me, but I know how it makes me feel, right? And that feeling is so undeniable. Um, and I kind of feel like that's the, is it all over my face thing? It's just like, there's something about my response to this that I just, I can't hide my enthusiasm for it and I can't hide the way it makes me feel. It's what we aspire to in our admiration of poets and poetry, that feeling that you've just described. Um, I'll just add my, to this round, my favorite line in the poem, which I think just proves as so much else in Killian does, that he's just a great poet. Uh, in an elegy, to have a line that just sits out there, cello wet with tears and how he's gone. That is just a damned fine moment in the poem. It precedes, it's, it, it follows Arthur Russell brings his hand around my cock and what's next is the cello wet with tears. I mean, he's made that cello cry. And it is, of course, you know, the song that gets produced out of their connection. And then how he's gone is an elegiac line, a traditional one, but it works really well there with the cello. Okay, so we've kind of just did our final thoughts. So what I'm going to do is ask you to do final thoughts, but to make them kind of a brief final observation rather than some grand summary. Um, Gabe, I just threw you a curveball. Do you have a final thought or observation about the poem? I do. I wanted to just mention something that we didn't get a chance to talk about or didn't really talk about at length, which is the beat um, that, so there's the beat of like stroking the dick that's mentioned here that becomes the disco beat. Um, and it also becomes one other thing. I like need to look at the poem again, but there's, so it's the doggerel verse uh, which becomes the dick stroking, which becomes the disco song. And I just love that moment. I just think that's a great, that this is like um, after the bizarre cover up for the emotional thing. And I just think that's good writing, but also it's a, an effective way of thinking about why these objects are like appealing to Kevin. Cause that, to be honest, that poem, it sounds bad. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a weird bad poem, but I like that Kevin becomes kind of obsessed with that poem because of its insistent rhythm. And he just starts comparing that and comparing that to all these different things that he associates with Arthur Russell. And I just thought that's a great moment in the poem. So I just wanted to highlight it. Thank you, Gabe. Trisha, final thought? Yeah, I guess, you know, in reading Kevin's work this weekend, I came across this line that I thought about a lot. Um, and the line is, um, but why do you lie? It's not lying if it's an attempt to do something about my life. Yeah. Um, and lying is a very strong word, but I think that in so many ways, what I value and appreciate, and, and I see myself in this element of Kevin's work, which is that like writing can be this kind of weird projective cinematic surface that's moving all the time. And that's not a lie, it's a way of like, manipulating and understanding your life. And I feel like that that's what this poem is. There's so many elements that shift all the time. It's kind of this like weird refractory surface for so many things, um, queerness and legacy and language and music. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my last thought. Thank you. Eric, final thought? Um, I just wanted to build on something that Gabe said about the numb, dumb beat um, and just, it's interesting to think about Kevin's work and be really sad about it when it really contains so much levity and joy. Yes. It's brought me so much pleasure in my own life. Um, this poem begins with Kevin kind of taking down Ginsburg 
for his numb <laughs> beat, right? But the final gesture of the poem is 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 an homage. It's it's an imitation, right? And I feel like it's that gesture that he wants us to be left with, not the gesture of sadness and loss, but the one that like what continues is how we kind of mirror each other and kind of gesture towards one another and pick up each other's um, gestures and feelings. Yeah. That's great. My, my final thought has to do with the ending as well, Eric. Um, I just love that Xanadu set up, the poets beyond um, kind of an exotic never, never land. And um, so it is a traditional way to end an elegy again, but there they all are. Kylie gets thrown in there as well, but there they all are. Um, the poets beyond, and it is it. We didn't answer my question about it, but that's okay. But there it is. Is it all over the world? It really broadens this thing out. This thing that you thought was just the face of this scarred-faced person, or my face after some hurt, uh, with you know the bandages, or come. Um, no, it's all over the world, and that's that's how we're going to end it with Xanadu. Yeah, it's just really, really a wonderful way to end. The other stupid thought I had was we're talking about duping, and then I realized what was in my head when I kept thinking about the title of the poem uh, is a torquing of an idiom. The idiom is egg all over my face, which is a way of saying, oh, I've been duped. And I think that Kevin is fully in charge of that kind of duping, getting you to think, uh, especially for non-queer readers, thinking about, is it all over my face? What does he mean? I have egg all, my, all over my face because I missed it. Anyway, I just thought, mm. <laughs> so another one of his tricks. Okay, well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us, if you're quick, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the dance world or the music world, whatever you like, or the museum world, whatever you like. So who wants to start? Gabe, are you ready with one? I want to shout out the work of Sebastián Castillo, a poet that I really care about who has a new book, which is called Not I. Um, and it's a great book. Not I is in the letter I and the, the me. Um, it's a great book from Word West, conceptual and sort of um, funny and sad in a, in a great way. And he also has another book before that one that I like a lot called 49 Venezuelan Novels. He's a poet and fiction writer that I just think is really great and very smart. Fantastic suggestion. Uh, Trisha, gather some paradise. Yeah, I want to shout out um, Marie Buck's new book, Unsolved Mysteries, which um, collects some of the work that she's been making over the past couple of years that I feel like really is kind of like appropriate to our time, like a very interesting set of thoughts about politics, uh, our, our responses to it and, and sex and the way these things kind of like mingle together and the banality of our kind of like ongoing apocalypse or like enduring apocalypse, maybe I should say that. Um, yeah, so that's my that's my little bit of paradise. Excellent, thank you, Eric. I'm gonna keep it very simple and on theme. Uh, today, I'm gonna gather in the the forthcoming release of Kylie Minogue's next album, Disco. Yes. <laughs> oh, Disco, really? It's called Disco, and it's out next month. That is exciting. Well, I don't know if I'm keeping to a theme, but I wanted to shout out this book, Losing Miami. Yeah. By, by Gabe. 
Dave, do you have the book right near you? Because if not, I'll read the poem that I wanted to pick out. I totally don't have it. Right that's here. fine. You're going to have to listen to me read it, but I'm excited to read it because I read it to myself earlier and I was very moved by my own reading of it. <laughs> okay. It's such a Miami situation. It's about fire ants. It's called fire ants. It's not really about fire ants, but it's about fire ants. Here it is. Fire ants. What a weak theory I have built for myself, the daily hurricane in the refrigerator. Not yet condensed, the Ziploc of fire ants, my tendency to trill warmth against the door. I built such a life out of life, it's doctored complications. I made this, these shapes of thin cheeks. I made the tropics into a thin circular theorem, but with a hand in their pincers, I'm starting to connect allergens to form a pyramid. That's a lovely poem, Gabe. Thank you, Al. Congratulations again. Well, that's all the obviosity of Ginsburg we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writers' House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writers' House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so, so, so much to my guests, Eric Sneedon, Trisha Lowe, and Gabriel Ojeda Segay, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, I will be joined by Bonnie Finberg, Jake Marmer, and Julian Poirier to talk about a poem by the late Steve Delachinsky called With Shelter Gone. It's a great poem. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. 